New Jersey's a great place to visit. Um, it's it's a wonderful place. We, uh, you know, and we just like every state, just a lot of interesting uh, politics going on. And and I think New Jersey is uniquely positioned as one of those states that its statewide politics have a lot of national implications, or at least implications for surrounding states. So it's it's a very unique position as a state to have um, within the Northeast. Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the US Centre here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson. And I'm Denise Barron. On this episode of The Ballpark, our final state-focused outing as we draw our State of the State series to a close, we're looking at New Jersey, the Garden State. We're going to give you an overview of the state's politics, which are pretty unusual even by US standards. And we're also going to use New Jersey as a lens to understand the issue of policing in America. On the politics side, we'll be looking at the state's progressivism, and also asking questions like, why are taxes such a big issue for voters in the Garden State? And what underpins New Jersey's close relationship with New York, which is much more famous over here in the UK than New Jersey is? And we have some insights from a policing summit hosted last year by the Open Society Foundations, which brought together police chiefs from the US with their counterparts in the UK to discuss different and novel approaches to law and order. So, uh, so Chris, why is New Jersey one of, or perhaps your favorite state? Well, I got to say, I'm I'm pretty off a with most of the 50 U.S. states now, and New Jersey is a very clear front runner for my favorite state in the U.S. Why? Hard to say. I think it's probably because it's New York's underappreciated younger sibling. People don't talk about it very often. But it's super interesting, given its location in the Northeast, its culture, its people, and most importantly, its politics, which, as we'll see, are really varied, really interesting, sometimes Republican, sometimes Democratic, and also their very powerful governor, Chris Christie, who just left office recently. I remember when we met back in 2015, one of the first things I learned about you was your love of New Jersey. And at every turn of different drama coming out of the Garden State, you would update me on what Chris Christie had said, on the new drama on this level and that level. It has been a consistent part of our work friendship, for sure. This is kind of like a dream come true for you to do an episode on New Jersey, isn't it? This is my Graceland. <laughs> and actually, interesting talking about Chris Christie, because in many respects, Christie's, just to go into the weeds now a little bit, Chris Christie's attitude actually presaged Trump. If we think about 2015, when Christie was encompassed by scandals, you had President Obama in the White House, fairly straightforward, fairly scandal-free, whereas in Christie, you had a hard-talking, angry, shouty, media-confronting governor, the likes of which didn't really exist in U.S. politics. Now look at who we have, a president who has an adversarial relationship with the media and isn't afraid of saying what he thinks off the top of his head. And so our expert on U.S. state politics, Sarah Scafidi, is here, and she's shared some other really interesting New Jersey facts with me too, which have only made it even more fascinating to me. So what can you tell us about New Jersey, Sarah? Well, Chris, it's funny you mentioned Graceland because musician Paul Simon was born in Newark, New Jersey, ah. and he's not the only musician. It's kind of America's rock and roll heartland in some ways. Bruce Springsteen is from there. John Bon Jovi is from there. 
And stateside, we know it mainly for its law forbidding motorists from pumping their own gas, its role as the setting of TV show The Sopranos, and its close, if sometimes contentious, relationship with New York. Or at least that's how I knew it. But while researching for State of the States, I learned that nearly 45% of the state is covered in forest, which offers some explanation as to why New Jersey is more densely populated than China. And probably why it's called the Garden State as well. Yeah, that too. <laughs> One wouldn't think about it. I think that the impression a lot of people have of New Jersey here in the UK is a bit like from the Sopranos, so maybe quite industrial, maybe not very friendly, but it sounds like, as I've said, one of the best states in the US. You'll have to visit and see. And if you'd like to know more about New Jersey, and who wouldn't, then head over to our brand new online platform, The State of the States, helpfully located at thestateofthestates.org. I also had the chance to chat with a new LSE student last fall at our Freshers' Fair, Joe Miller, about his home state of New Jersey. My name's Joe Miller. I'm on the general course at LSE. I study economics and political science at my home college. Fantastic. And you're, uh, you're from New Jersey? I'm originally from New Jersey, yes. Fantastic. Thank you. So for our listeners, could you just describe New Jersey to us in maybe two or three sentences and like, how big is it? What's it like to live there? Yeah. So New Jersey is a state surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean, New York, and Pennsylvania. There are 12 reps in Congress. So there's a lot of people there, uh, bigger than states like Minnesota. Um, I'm from Monmouth County, a town called Colts Neck. The majority of people in my town uh, commute to work in New York City, which is about an hour away. And there's a lot of green space in Monmouth County. I'm about 15, 20 minutes from the the shore, the Atlantic Ocean, the beach. And New Jersey has some industry, a lot of pharmaceutical industry. Used to be a lot of shipping industry in New Jersey in cities like Bayonne and Camden, but that has since shifted to New York and Philadelphia. So not so much shipping industry, but definitely um, very little like agriculture and landscaping. And a lot of people in New Jersey work in New York City or Philadelphia. So I live in more of a, a suburb in New Jersey. And to get a better sense of New Jersey's politics from a local expert, we spoke with one of our blog contributors, Ashley Koning. Ashley Koning, and I'm the uh, director of the Eagleton Center for Public Interest Polling, as well as an assistant research professor at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. So could you set the scene for our non-US listeners, of which we have a lot, and maybe give us a quick overview of New Jersey's political scene in recent years up to now? Oh, gosh, how much time do we have? Um, there, <laughs> there is so much to tell. Um, it's been a wild ride for New Jerseyans in the past, I would say, a uh, decade almost. Um, we had a, a number of uh, Democratic governors, and um, Chris Christie came in, beating out an incumbent governor. Uh, John Corzine, making him a one-term governor here. And and so Chris Christie came in in 2009, and he took over as the uh, first Republican governor in in a a somewhat of a stretch and uh, really shook the state up. And Chris Christie is a, no pun intended, uh, larger-than-life figure um, in in politics, particularly within New Jersey and, and nationwide for quite some period of time. Governor Christie started off as kind of that say it like it is tough talking Republican where he, you know, was was tough about getting taxes down and, and you know, tough against unions and, and a bunch of his video clips went viral back in the day. You know, whether he was yelling at teachers at town hall meetings or yelling at people and telling them to shut up and sit down. And, and this was the appeal 
and the love-hate relationship that New Jerseyans had with Chris Christie, um, both during the campaign and then once he was governor. So Chris Christie always kind of huddled around this 50% range in terms of, you know, the love him or hate him factor, um, especially because he was trying to revamp a lot of uh, educational issues, teacher tenure, uh, things like that, that made him very popular with his base and very unpopular with his opponents. But, you know, he was kind of gaining some notoriety in the Republican Party. He was kind of that moderate Republican that the Republican Party nationally kind of started seeking out around that time. And and so if we could visualize a, a trend graph of a line of his trajectory uh, during his tenure as New Jersey's governor, 2012, something big hits, uh, literally. We have Hurricane Sandy here on the East Coast. And so Hurricane Sandy was, was devastating for multiple states, especially for New Jersey. And Governor Christie had some some interesting issues with storm challenges in the past. You know, he he was actually for the very first hard-hitting storm. He was away in, uh, I believe, Orlando with his family, caught a lot of flack with that from the media. But, you know, the, the kind of rally around the flag effect that we saw in, say, um, a 9-11 with George Bush, this is in a much smaller way, in a, a much different way, though, Governor Christie had that kind of effect with Hurricane Sandy. And so his his approval and his favorability skyrocketed uh, immediately post-Sandy. And, and this kind of rally around the, let's say, storm effect lasted and was a very prolonged effect lasting through his reelection in 2013. So he he could do no wrong. And even he had Democrats and independents on his side, you know, Democrats, independents and Republicans alike he was just skyrocketing to stardom. And this was around the same time that we saw um, a lot of rumbling about his presidential or vice presidential aspirations, his national aspirations, even being considered to potentially be Mitt Romney's running mate at one point in 2012, and actually getting a lot of credit in the lead up to the 2012 election by saying, you know, uh, partisan politics be damned, essentially, and inviting President Obama to actually come to New Jersey to see the aftermath of the storm, um, winning him kind of bipartisan support across the board, statewide, nationally, kind of beginning this, what was characterized as, by the media as a bromance with President Obama uh, in the year after the storm. So it was it was a great year for Christie between 2012 and 2013. And, and even if things weren't happening with the economy, he uh, just garnered so much popularity off of his take charge efforts with the storm. Um, he was often characterized by wearing his fleece jacket. Um, he was very famous for a blue fleece jacket that he would wear to all of these different events. Yeah, I remember pictures of that. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, you know, this tough talking guy that everybody loved to hate, or at least a, a portion of the population loved to hate, now everybody loved to love. He was the bully that they wanted on their side. And so, you know, then we hit another huge point in this this trend graph that we have in our minds. You see his approval, his favorability going up to 70%, as high as 70%. And uh, then we hit his reelection. He easily makes his way through reelection, beating Barbara Bono, who was, in fact, not even really supported by her own party, you know, just kind of thrown out there as everybody kind of saw that this was a, a given that Christie would have a landslide. Everything seems to be going right for Christie as he enters his second term. And lo and behold, January 2014 hits. And the end of 2013 and then January 2014, when Christie holds a press conference on this issue, is the unraveling of his career and, and the era that we lovingly in New Jersey call Bridgegate. 
So uh, Bridgegate, you know, if any of the listeners have heard about, uh, there's time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee, a town in New Jersey, uh, that line became infamous and, and still is now four and a half years later. Bridgegate became a very simple scandal to understand nationwide. It became a scandal about in eyes, whether in New Jersey or nationwide, it became a scandal about a governor who so badly wanted re-election that his administration would cause traffic problems in a town whose mayor didn't support Christie. And so what happened was a whole debacle ensued. Uh, Trust in Christie fell. His favorability and job approval ratings fell. The governor, uh, you know, exclaimed that he had no knowledge of Bridgegate and, you know, that this must have been done without his consent by nefarious forces in his administration, which somehow always to the public seemed a dubious statement given that he was so intertwined with his administration. And um, he just kind of fell from grace from the beginning of 2014 onward. Uh, Actually, two of his administration received prison sentences uh, and are still trying to appeal them uh, years later now. It's just kind of become this, this infamous scandal that seems so silly, for lack of a better word, Um, putting up traffic cones and faking a traffic study at the entrance of the George Washington Bridge, which connects to New York City. And and it's the the busiest bridge in the world, isn't it? Yes. And and so this this is, you know, if you kind of imagine New York and New Jersey having this this interesting relationship together, New York gets all the glory. uh, But as a proud Jersey girl, New Jersey has a lot of beautiful and amazing things and, and really helps propel the lifestyle and the economy of at least the lower half of New York in terms of, you know, we are the the bridge and tunnel crowd, I say lovingly, that has all of the connections leading into New York. And so this hugely busy bridge that everybody will be on in rush hour heading into the city, you know, there were buses on there stranded for hours. There were ambulance vehicles, apparently, that were stranded. And so there were serious implications of lying about a traffic study and setting up these cones, which is why these years later, we actually see um, sentences being given for those who were pinpointed as being involved. Um, To this day, the governor claims no knowledge. His administration came out with a report. Everyone can kind of believe what they will, but that was downfall number one for Chris Christie. Uh, So Governor Christie, um, you know, and this kind of all leads up to what's happening in in politics in the state currently. And it's just such a a fascinating trajectory because it's rare that we see politicians climb so high and fall so low. And I I think a lot of the media just could not believe that Christie was in the teens and was actually the lowest governor on record by the time he left office. And what just made this story even more shocking is that this man had almost seven times the, the popularity back in his heyday of the storm. So Governor Christie kind of tries to go back on this, this redemption tour, almost. He, he hits the late night TV circuit, talks to Jimmy Fallon, does a little dancing with Fallon, tries to bring himself back into good graces. And then, of course, if we're continuing on with this timeline, as everyone can imagine, and we're entering... 2015 and uh, 2016, something big happens in the States in 2016. Mm, Very big. And so (laughs) we we wonder what that could be. Um, So uh, 2016 comes along and Chris Christie, who had garnered this kind of buzz around him regarding the presidency and regarding a, a national stage, he throws his hat into the ring for the presidency. 
so of course, in 2016, the primary field for the Republicans was huge. And uh, he became one of them. He was seen as kind of an underdog throughout, never really garnering a, a huge amount of support. But he had some stellar debate performances that kind of put him on the map um, as we were going through the primaries. But, you know, lo and behold, again, we have another blip in Christie's trajectory. And along comes his buddy from the, the state right next door, Donald Trump. And so Donald Trump essentially out Christie'd Chris Christie. And uh, there's, there's a lot of little rumors that have circulated around, right? whether they kind of made a deal to support each other, whether Trump thought that Christie was actually going to pull it out and win with this tough talking, tell it like it is, you know, let's just be brutally honest, shoot from the hip kind of personality. But Donald Trump actually did everything Chris Christie was doing, but better with the their voting block, with their base and, and with the Republican Party. And so Chris Christie's presidential light soon fizzled out. And, and after the New Hampshire primary in February, he um, he decided to, uh, you know, not continue on in the primaries. And so Chris Christie came back home to a very angry state with New Jersey pretty much completely disgusted with the governor in terms of just being gone all the time. Um, the media had been watching Christie like a hawk and actually counting the days and tracking every day where he was, mostly out of state. One of the years uh, in his second term, I think he was gone for a majority of the days of, uh, of an entire year. Wow. So it was it was a absence that was very strongly felt by New Jerseyans who, who felt like they basically had an absent governor. So you would think that Christie would come home and try to turn this around for his state and try to, you know, really the only thing that would help him would be to pick up the, his state and try to help out, you know, what was going on back home. And then, of course, he instead decides to help with Donald Trump's campaign. And so this is kind of strike three with New Jerseyans. And that takes us up to uh, the beginning of Phil Murphy's administration and, and what happened in our 2017 gubernatorial you know, Christie follows Trump. Uh, Christie never really gets a position in the cabinet, at least not yet. But Christie has been through this multiple times. Christie's one of the first to uh, support and defend Trump and be out there for Trump. And that's kind of how the rest of his term goes. And, uh, you know, it, not, not a whole lot he can do to salvage his legacy. And so he leaves office, like I said, with the lowest ratings of any governor in the state, widely, widely disliked, including by Republicans. Um, and this sets the scene up for a very difficult uphill battle for his lieutenant governor, who now is running on the Republican ticket in the state in 2017. So New Jersey is often thought of as kind of a bellwether for what happens, uh, given, given our gubernatorials are always after the year after presidential election. You know, we're always kind of considered with Virginia as, you know, uh, a indicator of where the ideological mood is in, in the country after a presidential election. Whether or not that's true, you know, there's there's arguments on both sides. But sure enough, we have a, a Democrat who wins in 2017, Phil Murphy, having a unified government now between our, our state legislature and the governor. Phil Murphy coming from completely out of nowhere, essentially, or, or at least seemingly to New Jerseyans. He was uh, President Obama's ambassador to Germany, but with no previous political experience in terms of holding office. So beating out Chris Christie's lieutenant governor handily, 
and uh, taking over and, and holding his first political office ever. So now we're approaching the one year mark of, of Phil Murphy's first term. And that's kind of where we are in New Jersey politics with a, a very interesting setup. And, and you would think this story has a, a very happy ending or a, a tied up in a neat little bow. But um, even with unified government in the state, because of the wonderful workings of New Jersey politics, we've seen some bitter battles between the new governor and his own party in particular, our state Senate president, uh, Steve Sweeney. And uh, it's made for some very interesting politics to watch over the past year. That actually seeks really nicely into my next question. From what I've seen, they brought in a great deal of what I would call progressive legislation. So environmental laws, and I believe they've even stopped uh, New Jersey police working with ICE. I think that's correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Since, since they were sworn in at the start of this year. So what's been the reaction to these policies across the state, maybe within the Democrats, as, as you've alluded to, and actually in state Republicans and, and elsewhere? So, uh, so yeah, no, that, that's a great point. Um, Governor Murphy has said many times that he would like to make New Jersey the, the California of the East Coast. So a lot of his legislative actions have come in to uh, you know, a progressive agenda, whether it be gun control or health care or education or equal pay and anti-discrimination laws. But you know, at the same time, that also means there, there are some tax increases in the current budget. You know, so Phil Murphy's a definite true progressive and, and following a lot of those progressive rules. And, and for the most part, they've been accepted by the public. You know, many of these things have been accepted by the state legislature. But if there's one thing to know, uh, that kind of the, the whole Christie preamble that I had um, really hits home with New Jersey is New Jersey is a socially liberal state, but a fiscally conservative one at the same time. New Jersey is one of the highest tax states. We have property taxes uh, that are astronomical throughout the state, you know, and, and these kind of heavy tax burdens. This is the number one problem New Jerseyans bring up in polls perennially, consistently, all of the time, that, that taxes and property taxes are their biggest concern. And so for New Jerseyans, while this progressive agenda is great, they don't want to see their taxes raised at the same time to really benefit a whole lot of it. They want to basically, New Jerseyans want to have their cake and eat it too in a way where they want these kind of things to happen. But at the same time, they want to make sure that, you know, their their taxes are going down given how high their tax. So there's been tension in the state legislature because of that. Not to go back into New Jersey's political history too much, but Bill Murphy beat out the state Senate president to be the Democrat on the ticket for 2017 when when before Phil Murphy came on the scene, Steve Sweeney was seen as a front runner for being the Democrat who would run uh, against Christie's lieutenant governor. And so there is a lot of supposed animosity between these two men, two very powerful men, um, each with with different roles and duties that they can kind of block one another. And so Steve Sweeney is from uh, a little bit of, of South Jersey. He's an iron worker by trade. Um, he likes to tout that often. He's a big union supporter, but he's also big on anti-tax uh, you know, legislation. And, and so he always kind of came together with Christie over lowering taxes or, or no new taxes. And so you know, this is a headbutt between the governor and a member of his own party who has a, a great deal of power. So that has kind of been the the roadblock between getting this progressive agenda out there and signed, 
you know, in terms of the governor versus his own party. And so, for example, we have pushed the deadline back as a state three or four times now regarding recreational marijuana. Um, the bill was supposed to be, you know, a done deal around Halloween. Then it was supposed to be a done deal, you know, before the end of the year. And and now we're at the end of the year and the legislation's not going to go through. And so this was one of Murphy's biggest campaign promises, you know, especially generating revenue to help the state's economy off of the legalization of, you know, personal use of recreational marijuana. And so um, the legislature is butting heads with him in terms of uh, who wants what in the nitty gritty details of the bill. And so, you know, even on issues that everybody seems to support, it's the details that are uh, putting up, you know, these these roadblocks or the the inability for the state legislature and for Murphy to work smoothly together. Sure. But you've already sort of mentioned a bit of this about uh, sort of ICE, uh, not lack of cooperation, but are there any issues that the New Jersey government may find itself at odds with the Trump administration coming up or sort of developing now? Uh, can I say everything? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, so honestly, it's, it's everything that is on the docket as some of the top issues in the state right now, beginning with taxes, uh, the SALT deduction, uh, which helps uh, especially New Jerseyans, but, you know, deducting your property and income taxes from uh, your, your annual uh, taxes. And, and this hit that's, New that's federal taxes, right? Yes, from your federal yeah. taxes. And, and this hit New Jersey particularly hard. A lot of, you know, it's interesting to see the correlation between the bluest states in the country and uh, who this salt deduction uh, controversy when, when tax reform went through under Trump, who it affects the most. It's even more interesting given that Trump has homes in New Jersey and is, is from New York. So it's, it's a whole messy situation of, you know, pondering why Donald Trump would do something like this, especially given given the circles he runs in. And so this this angered New Jerseyans more than anything else. Um, it has been a top issue in the state. It has been an issue that Governor Murphy has tried to continually address with his administration by trying to find workarounds that keep getting thwarted by the federal government. So again, taxes are not only an important New Jersey issue, but even made more so because it's putting New Jersey at odds with what the Trump administration has put into play. You know, and then I think everything on the progressive agenda of the current administration flies in the face of of the Trump administration, whether it's immigration, the environment, equality, Planned Parenthood. One of Murphy's first acts in office was was restoring funding to Planned Parenthood and a, a huge, huge problem facing the state that also connects back with New York is transportation infrastructure. So New Jersey is in desperate need of repairs and railway tunnels. And Trump has, where you would think this would be an issue of common ground, both federally and statewide, um, Trump has been very hesitant about assisting with his back home area of New York and New Jersey, assisting getting these tunnels established or any type of funding for these tunnels. Um, the, the tunnels in itself also date back to a Christie era issue, given that, you know, back in the 1990s, people were starting to realize that the tunnels that are currently existing there uh, are not holding up well, given it's it's almost 100 years later or, or over 100 years later. And so this problem has become more and more dire. Christie had a, a chance to build tunnels and receive some federal funding, but he thought that the tunnel project would take too much out of taxpayers' pockets and, and canceled uh, the tunnel construction. So 
there was a chance in the in the mid 2000s and then some work happened and now you know now we're back to the start of we need the tunnels the tunnels haven't been built yet and and we need them now uh, and there's been a ton of cancellations delays uh, accidents issues given the the transit situation between New Jersey and New York not not to not to scare any tourists or or people from coming here uh, but it's, <laughs> it's definitely a problem that needs to be addressed given how much these two states feed into each other's uh, economies through these tunnels um, but the Trump administration is is not as of yet doing a whole lot about it and it's it's definitely a top priority for the state so I would say that and, and the tax issue with the salt deduction are the the biggest issues here that they find that they're at odds with the federal government. And then essentially everything Murphy wants the state to be, I think, puts him at odds with Trump. So sort of having a bit of a bridge from uh, legalizing recreational marijuana to sort of more law and order issues. How important is law and order and issues like crime and policing? How important are they to New Jersey voters? I mean, you talked about taxes being the big issue, but where where would uh, law and order be amongst those, if anywhere? So that's a great question. I think it it depends on what we mean by law and order. Um, Like you had mentioned before, you know, uh, Grabeer Graywall, our state attorney general has, you know, put some restrictions in into what ICE can do in the state. But of course, then it becomes a state versus federal issue. And and there was actually just a a huge ICE raid recently that, uh, that, you know, they kind of basically flouted the state attorney general's uh, wishes and, and said, you know, we have to do this. You know, they they swept up a, a number of undocumented immigrants, I believe around 100 or so recently, and, and said, you know, this is our right to do this as ICE. Um, and so uh, the state is butting heads with the federal government on issues like that. And the, that's definitely an important issue for New Jersey. New Jersey is also uh, one of the uh, top states in terms of uh, diversity and immigration. So we, I believe we used to rank around fifth in terms of having the most um, immigrants. And so immigration, diversity are, are huge issues. And then also New Jersey is a very eclectic state. A lot of times people will think of it as the flyover state to New York and see kind of the, the steam stacks and the industry of Newark um, and not realize that we have kind of a little bit of everything. We have beaches, we have the mountains, we have skiing, we have uh, farms. And so that kind of dictates, that type of geography dictates how different areas of the state think. So, you know, we have some of the richest counties in the country. And then at the same time, we have some of the poorest cities. Um, When we look at Newark and Camden, Newark being next to New York City, Camden being near Philadelphia, as well as Trenton, our state capital. And and so police and, and law and order issues certainly come into play in these cities in particular. Newark, in fact, currently under consent decree um, by the Department of Justice, whether or not that you know, may continue given the change in administration, but this began under the Obama administration. So, you know, it's it's hard, I think, for New Jerseyans to rank it as a top issue. They they definitely see it being one of the top issues, but again, their top issue is always, without a doubt, taxes. So, you know, it's it's harder to say that it's an issue for the entire state. It's more, you know, it, it's about nine percent, in fact, say that it's the most important problem in New Jersey compared to over 30% who say taxes and property taxes. So that's just kind of a stark difference. And the more that we get into areas where it's an everyday occurrence or an everyday problem, um, of course, we would see in New Jersey, those are the areas where people would be more likely to say it's definitely on their minds. You know, it, it depends who it touches in the state. Since Ashley pointed out, 
that law and order is so tied to where you live, where you work. We wanted to zero in on one place, one town in New Jersey. And to do that, we went back to an interview that I conducted with the police chief of Camden, New Jersey, Scott Thompson. Scott Thompson has attracted a lot of attention to the work that he's done in Camden, New Jersey, in order to get their policing on a new track. Hi, I'm Scott Thompson. I'm the police chief in uh, Camden, New Jersey. And I, you know, I was last here in 2011 on an exchange with our, our, uh, our UK colleagues. Uh, and it was interesting at the time when policing on, on both sides of the pond were entering the, uh, the, the challenges of how to provide public safety services during a time of austerity. And we were struggling with the challenge of not only of trying to figure out how we would do more with less, but coming to the realization that we may have to, to do less better. And coming back here eight years later, I, I, um, extremely impressed by what I've seen from, uh, from my UK brethren uh, and that they're doing it as well as anywhere in the world. I also see that uh, the way that they've been tackling challenges that also are vexing us in the United States, with particularly with regards to, to mental health. Um, and as you know, in the United States, we're having some significant issues with the opioid crisis and the, the two issues are not mutually exclusive of one another. But all the while, also trying to build trust and legitimacy during some extremely challenging times in, in neighborhoods of color on both the United States and uh, and and over here in, uh, in the United Kingdom as well. I believe the American model, eighteen thousand police departments, is just uh, there's not an economic reality to that, right? There's there's going to have to be regionalization at some point in time. I can tell you this, uh, and in fact, when I was last over here, I had just gone through probably one of the worst cases of austerity in, in, in our country um, from a police department's perspective. We had in, in 2011, uh, we laid off 46% of our organization in one day. Everybody with 14 years or less was sacked. We demoted 70% of the organization. Now, one thing that we learned in that process was that, yeah, there was, there was some fat in that organization that could have been trimmed, but cops count and police matter. Uh, what we saw happened in our community thereafter was uh, nothing short of tragic. Our shootings and our murders eclipsed that of third world countries, the rate. And our relationships with our communities were absolutely decimated. Uh, we already had challenged relationships to begin with. Uh, and now we were to the point where we couldn't even respond to calls for service. We were just running from emergency to emergency. And oftentimes it would take us an hour to get there for a priority one job. So there is a, a depth to that pool that uh, you need to learn before you dive into it because it can take years to recover from uh, th that's not going to be a quick bounce when you hit bottom. So like Craig said, you know, there's, there's definitely ways you can find to be more efficient and, uh, and, and more streamline your services. And, and, you know, the, the reality of it is that you, you can't do more with less. That's impossible. You're going to do less with less, but you just try to find a way to do, you do it better. When push comes to shove and uh, you start to lose as much of the resources as, as we did, you come to find out real quickly how, how important guardian figures in neighborhoods are. I just wanted to expound upon uh, my colleague Sheriff Jerry's point with regards to the recognition of 
the institutional history that American policing has, particularly with uh, its minority communities. And it's something we have focused on in our organization. You know, we we're training our officers in de-escalation and how to handle situations. And and part of that is to is to educate them to the understanding of the physiological response to people in situations with uh, heightened anxiety. And it's crucially important for our younger officers, which is really the majority of, of a lot of forces out there this, these days, to understand that what that uniform represents to certain people in certain communities. You know, it, was, it wasn't but four and a half decades ago in which that uniform was standing on the other side of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in, in Selma, Alabama. And it's for our officers to realize that although they not, may not be responsible for that, this uniform that we wear is responsible to that. And that we were the enforcers of Jim Crow laws. And there are people that are still alive today that experience that from people who were wearing our uniform before. Um, and, that, you know, that kind of gets back down into just because you can do something doesn't always mean you should do something, right? But our officers need to understand, and we as leaders need to understand, that that's something that arrives on scene oftentimes before we do. And that we've got to understand that. And now, you know, there's ways to combat against that. And we try. And most of that's going to come through human contact. That's going to be experiential. You know, uh, us with the stars and bars can stand up and give the great speeches all day long. That's not going to really define your organization. It's going to be the, the lowest ranking individual uh, in their daily interactions, which are dozens each and every day. Um, so I, I do think it's important for moving forward as, you know, policing as an institution in the United States of America to understand where we were in recent history. And if we don't approach this from with some type of reconciliation, I don't know how we really truly develop trust and legitimacy within those particular neighborhoods and with those particular people of color. Well, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to uh, to tell UK police how how to, how to police their drug issue. To be quite frank, that's like a doctor trying to diagnose another patient from afar, right? Uh, I, I can relate to you what what my experiences have been, and that here's what I know. I, I know that my handcuffs and my service pistol do very little to address the issues of addiction, which has people buying drugs, or to correct the socioeconomic ills that generally leads people to sell drugs, right? And uh, I'll tell you, uh, even my own personal mistakes over my years of, of, of being uh, in, in law enforcement, particularly in a, in a really challenged community that, that's nine square miles, population of 77,000. At one point in time, we had 175 open-air drug markets. Flagrant drug activity taking place all day long. And during these times, I was a narcotic officer. Uh, and I put as many handcuffs on drug dealers as, as a police officer, and given that opportunity, could do. Hundreds and hundreds of people. And I did that for years. And I, uh, the organization patted me on the back, gave me awards, told me I was doing a great job. I thought I was doing a great job. And then at some point in time, and it really, the, the maturation came when I, when I really started to get integrated more with the community. And I started to see the negative impact that, that the arrest was having. You know, locking up a 15 year old kid that's out there selling nickel bags of, of, uh, of weed on the corner and institutionalizing them and pulling them out of school creates more of a problem than adding to uh to to the solution and it wasn't it wasn't until again the community was 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 saying to me you know why why are these people still here selling drugs and i thought back when when i was doing narcotic enforcement why was it that i could go to the same corners every day and get a drug lockup 
what was I doing? And we were we were focused on on outputs and not outcomes. And the reason why I'm locking up drug dealers is because I'm trying to get rid of this open air drug market so that the little kid can walk to the corner you know, or, or play ride on her bike, or the or the, the 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 mother can walk to the corner store to get a gallon of milk. And we shifted uh, our approach to it. And you know, to make a very very long story short, we changed our tactics. We we stopped measuring arrests. We stopped measuring tickets. We had to build relationships within these communities. We needed to hit tipping points of, of public safety to have more good people on the street than bad people on the street. And essentially took police officers and 1829, Bobby on the beat, put them on the corner. Because one thing is axiomatic. It's very difficult to buy or sell drugs with a uniformed police officer standing there and to have a continuity of presence and to build relationships with, with the community so that people didn't abandon public space and so that they would you know, sit on their front steps and, 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 and walk to the corner store. And then when you, when you can achieve that, it starts to change the dynamic of neighborhoods. Every one of our officers carries in the lock zone. We have, uh, we're in, in my area, we are kind of ground zero with, uh, the opioid e- epidemic and like much other areas. I had more, I had more overdoses in 2017 than I had fatal fatal overdoses 2016 and 2015 combined. I had 90 people die on my streets. Uh, we saved our 350th life uh, a couple of weeks ago. I can tell you that uh, we've come a long way as a as an institution. American policing has, and I think a lot of that's come from a better understanding of addiction, the disease of addiction. Uh, that a lot of uh, the people that are using the opioids are not necessarily making uh, morally wrong choices. They're battling a disease. And them getting that pill or them getting that bag of heroin is as vital to them as you or I taking our next breath. And we had to we had to erase the stigmatization that a lot of officers had with the initial reluctance to wanting to administer naloxone because of the mindset was, this is just some junkie that's getting high. Why should I have to, to administer this? Because they're only going to go get high again. Uh, and then we had to remind officers that, you know, the, the, the sanctity of human life, it's not for us to decide whose life has, has more value than others, right? If the life's to be saved, we save it. If you don't like doing that, then go find another line of work. And so the, uh, the naloxone has, uh, has really seemed to take hold in, in uh, policing throughout the country. I think there's still some organizations that are, that are stuck a few decades ago in the way of thinking, but that's just not on the naloxone issue. That's on other issues as well. Uh, and we'll just continue to, uh, like my colleagues here, we'll lead from the front and uh, and create a wake that others will follow. In. So real quickly, you know, we, we had a shift in this too. Uh, there was a point in time when we had extremely high levels of, of gun violence and open air drug markets. And we would we would uh, measure the effectiveness of our officers, again, by, by outputs and not by outcomes. And how the officers, supervisors were held to account we're off of statistics. How many people are your are, are your folks engaging during a shift? If if they're not stopping fifteen people, then then they're not doing their job. And there was unintended consequences of this, and it, it really was it was a mental shift for us in realizing that you know what's the definition of insanity? It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result but not getting it. And that we had to shift our our strategies and our tactics to particularly with regards to gun violence to not police hot spots but to police hot people and to like um chief jerry said uh we we don't fish with a net we fish with a spear and what we find is that in the united states you know studies show that five percent of your population commits 80 percent of your crime 
So if you've got a community of 100,000, you've got 5,000 people that's committing about 80% of your crime. Within that 5%, you've got another 5%, right? So you've got 250 people. These are the folks for which we build prisons. These are the sociopaths. These are the folks that will negatively define the lives of everyone else in the neighborhood. And what frustrates the people in those neighborhoods, and this is particularly neighborhoods of people of color, is that when, when that 5% of the 5% does something that draws our attention, we would traditionally go in and paint everybody with the same broad brush. And we would do strategies and tactics and set up roadblocks and, and hand out summonses, uh, and the impact that I saw in my community with this as well was in cities of 50,000 or more in the United States of America, we're the, we're the poorest city. Our per capita income is less than $13,000 a year. So now I have a single mother with four children trying to get by. She doesn't have the choice of moving out of her neighborhood. Someone comes into her neighborhood, fires off a gun, and now she's trying to return from work. She's coming into one of our roadblocks. She's getting pulled over because she didn't have her seatbelt on, and she's getting handed a $250 ticket, which is going to be life-altering for her. And then we wonder why she doesn't want to cooperate with us. And we wonder why uh, there is some other incident, which doesn't seem to be that significant at the time, but produces a flashpoint in which now they're they're marching in our streets and and, and they're calling for um, for reform. So it was to be more meaningful with it. And what we what we found was that when we deviated from these tactics and we would go back to being the guardians in the neighborhoods, the information we started to receive gave us much better ability to target the people with the guns. And the people that that, that live in these challenged neighborhoods, they want the full weight of law enforcement to be put on that 5% of the 5%. What frustrates them is when everybody knows who those folks are, but we don't. And we're the professionals, right? So it's by changing this tactic, changing our strategies, having engagement represent something different with the community than stopping them, you know, searching their pockets and the like, uh, and, and reserving that for that very, very small group of people that need that undivided attention upon them. Now that we've had a close look at what's going on on the ground in one part of New Jersey, let's shift back to look at New Jersey's politics overall. Ashley Koning also shared what we should keep an eye on in New Jersey as we head towards the 2020 elections. She highlighted the importance of realizing that no state is a monolith. Elections are likely to be competitive and contentious in very diverse states like New Jersey. What are some key issues? I mean, we've already talked a little bit about this, but what... What are some key issues in New Jersey politics you'll be keeping an eye on over, say, well, up until the the 2020 presidential election, for example? So taxes, always taxes. Um, (laughs) That never ends. Transportation infrastructure, uh, for sure, because of the reasons we talked about. You know, it's it's a really dire problem and not just for New Jersey, but for New York and the whole northeastern corridor on which Amtrak trains run on. Um, And then, you know, the two biggest things that New Jersey is dealing with right now are the minimum wage and marijuana um, legislation that continually keeps getting stalled. And I'm sure Governor Murphy wants to see done in the new year. So this will be at the forefront of statewide politics in terms of, you know, what gets passed and when for these two issues. And would you say that New Jersey is now definitely a, a, a blue state or does it still have a little sort of inkling of being a purple state? You know, I think this harkens back to what we were talking about in terms of how diverse Jersey is, you know, economically, socially, geographically. Uh, You know, New Jersey is not kind of a a monolithic state. Um, A lot of times it's characterized as a blue state, a blue, you know, blue Jersey, people will often call it. 
Um, but I think that's that's a tricky thing to say. I, you know, back in the day, if we if we look at the presidential elections, New Jerseyans often went for the Republican candidate in a great deal of elections prior to uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush. And then, you know, once Bill Clinton hit and, um, you know, George Bush Jr. And, and then Obama, that's when New Jersey started becoming very uh, blue. But if we looked at a lot of prior to the 2018 midterms, if we looked at a lot of the congressional maps from years past, um, the congressional map was still pretty red, both in 2014 and 2016. Again, we're dealing with areas that have uh, some pretty conservative Republicans in them, especially fiscally and dealing with some of the richest counties in the country in New Jersey. And so this this makes for an interesting dynamic between red and blue. So it was certainly a blue wave that swept over New Jersey this time around, given that we're left with one Republican uh, member of Congress now. You know, but I, I think New Jersey is always a toss up because of its moderate ideology and its desire to balance that social liberalism with fiscal conservatism. Right. And so talking about the, the, the ideology in the state and the state's politics, uh, maybe just as, just generally, how, how does New Jersey politics compare with those of its nearby neighbors and in, in kind of the northeast sort of area that it's in? Yeah, so it's it's funny. I think the media tries to characterize a lot of it as this northeastern bubble. Um, you know, New Jersey, New York, and and farther north, all the way up through Maine. And uh, you know, it's it's pretty true. There there is a little northeastern bubble, and and of course, the farther south you go after New Jersey, the the redder the country will get. So I think it compares pretty well to that association with other northeastern states. I think. The thing with any of these states that that anyone has to be mindful of is, again, none of them are a monolith. Um, none of them are homogenous when it comes to politics. There, there are always pockets of red and blue in every one of these scenarios, whether at the local, state, or federal level, because really it all comes down to socioeconomic status and geography and uh, you know income levels and, and all of that kind of stuff and, and race and ethnicity in terms of how each of these areas are and then how how their politics reflect that. So you know even if we say oh well New Jersey's totally blue and New York is totally blue and so on, there are a lot of red pockets in there that that definitely have to be recognized. And I think that's why we do see contentious uh, you know state elections and and congressional elections. Because, you know, there, it's not like everybody is, is uh, you know, completely liberal or completely to the left. You know, we do see a lot of variation in the Northeast. And that's all from us for this time on The Ballpark. Thank you to Ashley Coney, Joe Miller, and Scott Thompson. This episode of The Ballpark was produced by Michaela Herman with contributions from Sarah Scafidi, Denise Barron, and Chris Gilson, that's me, and with help from the LSE's Annual Fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can find them at rangerswings.com. We think they're brilliant. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think about the show by emailing us at uscenter at lse.ac.uk or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. You can catch up on all of our other ad-free episodes of The Ballpark by searching for us in your search engine of choice. And tell your friends about us. Tell them, please, tell them now. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Center or of the London School of Economics. Don't miss this season's final episode, where we'll be sharing what we learned about the states this year on the ballpark. We'll talk about some of our favorite political moments of 2018, things we were surprised by, and what we're expecting as we head towards 2020. We'll also hear from other ballpark contributors, including Peter Trubowitz and Chris Kanthak, who you might remember from the first episode of this season. 
about what they learned from 2018's midterm elections. Thanks for listening and see you next time.